0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. It's great to see you all here this morning. Um, as you can see, we've, um, we're have we changing our uh, approach a little bit to um, giving you information about the CME code, next week's um, conference, um, when we have other uh, timely announcements, we'll include those. There's one about Schwartz Rounds um, that you'll see coming up, presented by one of our Um, Residents today, um, Gwen Caffrey. Um, There are lots of reasons we think this is more efficient for those of you who are coming in um, and and to have the CME code in a visible place for those who are watching externally. Uh, One thing I'd like to do after today is not have a paper posting on the wall. We did include one big paper down here. Um, And for those of you um, who missed this in the beginning, because obviously this isn't going to be here through the whole conference, and want to get that code at the end, after today, We'll just have a small paper that is um, near our uh, evaluation forms at this exit and the exit up front. So that'll cut down on our paper use substantially um, and keep us from that embarrassing moment when the Paper falls off the wall in the middle of the speaker's talk, <laughs> which hopefully will not be an issue today, but has been uh, at times in the past so um, uh, and and then one other um, mention today's talk is eligible f- uh, for meets the requirements for um, opioid related um, CME credits for um, your New Hampshire or Vermont license and um, the way you can claim that is make sure you claim CME for today's conference, so make sure you put that code in and claim CME, and then when you access your transcript, you will be able to see the conference with this title. It won't be labeled in any other special way, but just remember that you saw this talk and you'll find that um, title on your on your transcript and you can use that on your, um, your forms for, for the New Hampshire Board. Okay, with all of that, I'm going to um, switch our slides over and... Um, then I'll, I get the pleasure of telling you about our speakers for today. So so we have um, two speakers today um, who are, I think, gonna present a nice balanced perspective um, that's both um, evidence-based and practical. Um, I'll tell you first about Kathleen Brolio. Uh, Kathleen is a nurse practitioner and assistant professor of medicine in the section of palliative medicine and a scholar at Dartmouth's co-laboratory for implementation science program. She earned her Bachelor of Science in Nursing from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, a Master of Nursing from the University of Washington in Seattle, and Doctor of Nursing Practice from the NYU School of Nursing, and um, she also completed an Advanced Practice Nursing Fellowship with a focus on palliative and end-of-life care at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York. Dr. Brolio's focus of clinical care is in complex pain management and patients at risk for substance use disorder. She's a co-principal investigator on studies of opioid prescribing and ambulatory palliative care, interprofessional education in palliative and hospice care, opioid risk assessment in the oncology setting, and therapeutic cannabis use in the palliative care population. She's funded through a Department of Medicine Advisory Council on Education grant to improve opioid risk assessment and appropriate referral to palliative care for patients <clears throat> with cancer-related pain and she is the 2018 recipient of a mentored training award from the American Association of Nurse Practitioners and National Institute of Drug Abuse. She's presented nationally and internationally and is the author of articles and book chapters on topics related to pain management and palliative care, coordinates the ethics series for the Journal of Hospice and Palliative Nursing, and is a member of the editorial advisory board for the Nurse Practitioner Journal. And um, that's all great and I'm sure makes you eager to hear from her but you have to wait a little bit because you're gonna hear first from Seddon Savage who is an adjunct associate professor of anesthesiology on the faculty of the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, um, an educator and advocate in the fields of addiction medicine and pain medicine. She's a graduate of Barnard College, Columbia University and the Dartmouth Medical School. She completed her internship in internal medicine at the Veterans Hospital in Jamaica Plain and her residency in anesthesiology and fellowship in pain management here at DHMC. Dr. Savage currently serves as advisor to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Substance Use and Mental Health Initiative, is developing provider, trainee, and staff education aimed at optimizing the clinical care of of persons with behavioral health challenges. She serves on New Hampshire's Governor's Commission on Alcohol and Other Drugs, and is Chair of the Commission's Task Force on Opioids, and co-chair of its Healthcare Task Force. Dr. Savage previously served as Medical Director of the Chronic Pain and Recovery Center at Silver Hill Hospital in Connecticut, and is the Director of the Dartmouth Center on Addiction Recovery and Education. She's also a past president of the American Pain Society and of the New Hampshire Medical Society. She co-chaired the Chronic Pain Work Group of the Federal Pain Research Strategy, an initiative led by the National Institutes of Health aimed at developing priorities for federal funding of pain research uh, from September 2015 through the launch of the FPRS in July of 2016. Um, So you can tell these are two speakers with great expertise on this topic which I think is um, becoming a daily challenge for all of us um, in clinical medicine. Um, The use of cannabis um, and opioids together or in uh, in place of um, for complex chronic pain management. Welcome Seddon and thank you both.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for the nice introductions um, for both of us. Um, this is definitely a timely issue. As you all know, you can't open a paper or turn on the radio without hearing something about cannabis. There are many pieces of legislation before the New Hampshire legislature and likely the Vermont legislature as well. Um, but in New Hampshire, I am certain that there are bills that are trying are working to expand indications for the use of therapeutic cannabis. There is a large bill with a lot of support looking at legalization of of cannabis in the state, we are surrounded on all sides of the state with other states that have legalized um, uh, cannabis for all use. Um, so um, we many people are very passionate about these issues, too. Um, we did a survey recently at the Medical Society about both therapeutic cannabis, people's experience with that, and we found that despite legalization uh, availability of recreational cannabis, four years ago, about 50% of people have certified at least one person. Um, And 30% of people say they rarely do it, but they've done it on occasion. So clearly there's some polarization around therapeutic use. And when we surveyed people about recreational use, we found uh, 49% for legalization, 51% opposed. And it wasn't in the moderate range. It was strongly. So um, I think people are passionate. We want to leave time for questions, so we are going to fly through just floating some basic concepts and ideas and, and some of the literature around these issues. We want to leave time for discussion. I hope we'll be able to do that. Um, Our focus today is on um, therapeutic cannabis. Recreational cannabis is overlapping in some of the issues, but we're really going to focus very much on the patient in front of us and how to make decisions um, around that. So in order to ground us, um, Kathleen um, Brolio is going to uh, give us a couple of cases that we can let percolate She'll present them to us, and then we'll see what happened later on. Um, As she's coming up, I'm going to say that neither of us have any commercial relationships to disclose. The objectives have been published for this, um, being able to assess and make decisions about managing patients, monitoring them um, with good care, and thinking about interactions between opioids and cannabinoids. Um, We're going to look first at pain, then some historical and policy issues, um, talk about cannabis and cannabinoids, and interactions, and come back to clinical pearls and considerations. Yes.
2: Thank you. So I'm going to talk about a couple cases to start with to set the background and then let set and take over about the history. I moved here in 2016, and when I first started in the outpatient clinic, daily people came in because that's when it became available in New Hampshire. I want to be certified for cannabis. So I had to learn about it because they're asking. And then Seddon put me on the spot and asked me to speak at the cannabis conference here so she could attend the Women's March. And so I had to really learn about it. So uh, something I do every day in my clinic. So this first case, I mean, I work in palliative care, but we do see a lot of people with pain, and people that don't have cancer anymore no evidence of disease, so really have chronic pain secondary to the cancer of the effects. And so the first lady is a 66-year-old woman who had multiple myeloma. She had the stem cell transplant. She had a bowel obstruction, but she had no other significant medical history. But two years after the transplant, she has no evidence of disease, but has myalgias and uh, chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathic pain, for which she's treated with both extended release and immediate release opioids. She's also on neuropathic agents at maximal doses. Socially, she's no history of substance use, no alcohol use or rare, no tobacco use, and she's never used cannabis recreationally. And she comes in and says, what do you think about this? Will it work? So that's our first case. The second case is a 54-year-old man who has squamous cell lung cancer. He's status post-resection, chemotherapy, radiation. He has no evidence of disease two years later. He developed post-thoracotomy pain syndrome, and despite escalating doses of opioids, repeat intercostal nerve blocks. I think Dr. Fishman might have been involved with this. Um, he was not effective. And he started misusing his <clears throat> methadone, and, which was being prescribed for pain, not for opioid use disorder. And we transitioned him to buprenorphine naloxone. So he's using that and nortriptyline, 50 milligrams nightly. He's disabled. He can no longer drive commercially, which is what he wants to do, but he's on opioids. Um, he's got a 60 pack year history of tobacco use. He drank daily prior to his diagnosis. And he's being supplied by his friends and family with cannabis and comes in and says, well, what about therapeutic cannabis? So that's the background. I'm going to let Sedin talk more about the issues related to cannabis, and we'll come back and talk about the cases and what do we do in our clinic. Thank you, Kathleen.
1: Okay, I want to talk very, very briefly about the experience of pain. Um, oh, I don't need that. Yes. on. Um, because I think it's really important when we talk about potent medications such as opioids or potent medications such as cannabis that we not think that the, the, the holistic way to manage pain is to find the right medication and make the pain go away. Um, we, um, Uh, experimented with that with opioids, which are very potent initially, and um, that created some challenges. I think if we go down the same path with cannabis, we may find um, similar challenges. So it's important to understand that pain is a complex um, biopsychosocial experience. Um, Back in the 1600s, Rene Descartes and others who were doing scientific research at that time identified that pain was provoked by tissue injury. Uh, signals traveled up the peripheral nerves to the spinal cord and up to the brain. Uh, So transduction of a uh, signal, transmission to the brain, um, and up onto perception. It is only in the last few decades that we've begun to really understand that in addition to this electrophysiologic pathway um, that we used to think of as being fairly hardwired, that there are very complex Interactions that modulate that pain signal at every point along the way, ways that the tissues become sensitized or desensitized to uh, nociceptive pain signals. Transmission can be modulated by the neurochemical environment at the level of the spinal cord, um, by inflammatory um, or lack of inflammatory signals within the nervous system, within the tissues. And then when the signal gets to the brain, thoughts, feelings, memories, and other things can, which are also electrophysiologic signals within the brain, can turn off, turn on, modulate that signal. So that leaves us with multiple approaches to treating pain. And when I have a complex pain patient in front of me, and I'm sure uh, many of you do this as well, I think very methodically about what in each of these categories may be helpful for them. Um, are there psycho-behavioral things that can be done? Is anxiety driving it? Would a deep breath and some meditation be helpful? And meditation is proving to be a uh, neurobiologically active intervention for pain that alters pain pathways. Just one example of the psycho-behavioral interventions. Would ice and positioning and pillows be helpful, physical intervention, stretch and procedures, very potent in some patients for short-term management of pain and sometimes long-term. And then we have many classes of medications the most potent certainly being opioids, cannabinoids may, may have a role with some patients as well as we develop um, new pharmacologic interventions and or for some people use herbal cannabis. Um, But we have many other classes as well. So thinking in a very balanced way about what the patient can do for self-care in the acute or the chronic pain setting in partnership with us providing active treatments for pain and looking not only at reducing pain but restoring function and improving quality of life. So those are the goals of pain treatment. Um, so, to focus now on opium and can, uh, opioids and cannabis. Um, opium and cannabis are ancient herbal remedies. They have been around um, at least since 3000 BC, each of them. They have very important historical uses in healing. Um, analgesia, sleep induction, enziolysis for, for both of them um, traditionally have been uses for opioids, um, treating cough, treating diarrhea, for cannabis, uh, muscular spasticity and others over the centuries, they have been found very helpful. Both of them share in common that they produce euphoria. Um, they are subject to uh, reward and uh, misuse, diversion, and addiction in vulnerable people. So they can be used for harm. And because of that, When we think about clinical care of patients using either opioids or cannabis, um, we need, as we do with all medications, to balance the risk for that patient and the benefits for the individual patient based on um, what we know scientifically and clinically. But in addition, because of their potential for diversion, misuse, addiction, and public health problems, we need to balance public health considerations as well. As clinicians, our responsibility is to the individual in front of us, but we need to uh, accommodate treatment to be sure that the medications are being used for what they're intended, and that we continue them only as long as they're helpful. So, we no longer use opium. Um, I think tincture of opium may still be available for treatment of bowel diseases. Yes. Yes. Richard nodding his head, um, but in general, we use uh, modern pharmaceuticals that are derived from opium or synthetic analogs of opioids. Um, so, why are we now using whole plant herbal cannabis? It's a very complicated history, but I want to touch on the key features because I think uh, a policy and historical context is helpful for helping us understand use, misuse, and therapeutic use. So. Um, Opium has been around, as I said, since 3000 BC. Tincture of opium um, uh, was uh, first uh, formulated around the 1500s. Um, dissolving in alcohol or oils in order to administer. Morphine was extracted before 1900, as was heroin. So, um, with diacetyl morphine, which were both used as medications in the <coughs> 1800s, and morphine continuing to the present time. There was no regulation until about 1914 of opioids that were freely used. Opium was, could be used in the street, uh, medications could be prescribed without taxation, licensing, or um, uh, c- particular controls. Um, oxycodone and hydrocodone were introduced in the early 20th century, around the time of the first uh, American opioid epidemic, because there were few controls. Um, there were both therapeutic use and a lot of public use of opioids, and it was estimated that about one in seventy people in the states was either dependent or addicted to in the United States who was dependent or addicted to opioids um, so in the uh, around one thousand nine hundred and twenty there were a couple of cases that determined physicians could no longer treat addiction with opioids they could continue to prescribe <laughs> for pain, but it was uh, specialized centers were developed um, to manage cases of addiction. Prescribing declined through the 20th century, and those of you who were around in the 50s may remember that we didn't use opioids even for cancer very aggressively at that point in time, or for post-operative pain and chronic pain. They certainly weren't used. Then there were changes through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Sustained-release opioids were um, brought onto the market, and opioid therapy first for hospice and palliative care, then post-surgical pain, and then chronic pain um, became uh, the norm. So if we look at the line, and this is a CDC graph. Most of you have probably seen this from 2011. Um, uh, The uh, green line, I believe, are sales, yes. And unfortunately, as sales increased between 1999 and 2010, we saw parallel rises in deaths and um, in demand for treatment of opioid use disorder. So the observation that harm parallels availability um, was made uh, proliferating prescriptive guidelines and policies came on. The CDC passed their uh, guidelines, and many states have adopted elements of those as rules um, or, or um, have other legislative um, prescriptions on prescribing. So availability to our patients is changing. Um, uh, Some will ask, should the goal be safer access or less access? And um, there are beginning to be reports of undertreatment of pain as a result of people's um, growing concerns about opioids. So finding the balance, as it has been really for millennia, um, is still present. But it's natural that we turn and look for alternatives to opioids. Um, Just one more uh, thing about opioids. If we look at the yellow line here, we're looking at prescription opioid between 1999 and 2017. We can see prescribing began to fall off in 2010, rose a bit, but has leveled off to a great degree. In In New Hampshire, it has gone down very, very significantly. Um, but what we see in the uh, uh, dark red is the rise of heroin starting in about 2010, and then a huge uptick in, these are not prescriptions, these are overdose deaths associated um, with the use of prescription opioids and um, heroin. And then we see in the orange line uh, fentanyl, not prescription fentanyl being diverted, but manufactured fentanyl uh, being brought uh, from China, Colombia, and other sites into the States. Some of it manufactured here, um, substituting for heroin in the street, and we've seen the huge uptick in opioids. So looking for alternatives Um, As opioid prescribing declines and we're more cautious to avoid doing harm with opioids, um, cannabis is very, very much on the scene. There are now 38 states in which cannabis is legally available for some use. Um, In 12, it's available exclusively for medical purposes. Um, Decriminalization exclusively without medical use in four states. Both medical and decriminalization in nine. Um, and 11 states have it legal for um, adult use. In nine of those, it's taxed and regulated, and in two of them, um, there are no sales, but if you have it, you can use it. Um, So um, cannabis history is a little different than the history of opioids. Similarly, it's been around since at least the um, 3,000 to 4,000 B.C. Herbs, tinctures, extracts have been available worldwide, Um, for many centuries. Um, In 1850, cannabis, whole plant cannabis, was part of the U.S. pharmacopoeia. So it was available um, for prescription. It had indications for neuralgia, for alcoholism, and opiate addiction, which is one of the indications for which we're um, uh, expansion is being sought this year in the legislature. Um, it was used as an antiemetic, and it was used for seizures. And you're probably aware that uh, new cannabis-derived um, medication, uh, uh, cannabidiol called Epidiolex, is now available in the U.S. for treatment of seizures. So because of widespread social use and recreational use, diversion misuse, and complex cultural and social issues, In the uh, early part of the 20th century, there was a pushback on the use of cannabis, and 10 states prohibited Um, cannabis use, and the League of Nations on a worldwide basis, reflecting some of the same issues, um, recommended restrictions that it only be used in medical contexts, not available for recreational purposes. So um, in order to facilitate limits on cannabis use, there was taxation and some licensing requirements for pharmacies and clinicians. The AMA, interestingly, opposed these. They felt it was, in our historical context, it seems interesting, um, that they opposed limiting access to cannabis because at that time it was an important um, pharmacologic intervention um, for patients. Um, what's different about cannabis history, I think, and what's interesting about it, is that the cannabinoid medications, so we had heroin, uh, dacetylmorphine, and uh, morphine isolated in the 1800s. So we, and then early in the 20th century, oxycodone and hydrocodone. So that we had a tradition of development of pharmacologic um, modern medicines from opium. Um, with cannabis, that happened much later. There was one, um, cannabinol was isolated in 1899, but that's a, a, a metabolite. It's not terribly potent um, for pain purposes. It wasn't particularly euphorogenic, and so it did not come into use as a medication um, in um, uh, large volumes. And it wasn't until the 1960s that THC tetrahydrocannabinol, which is a psychoactive component and possibly the analgesic component of cannabis, became available, and nineteen forty that cannabidiol became available. So we didn't have this tradition of the development of cannabinoids, and research has lagged because, in part, in nineteen seventies when the Controlled Substances Act came to be, it was classified as Schedule One, no legitimate medical uses, and so research was really forestalled, and clinical use was forestalled. Um, as we know, cannabis is still illegal under um, federal law, um, so we have a conflict between federal laws and state laws. Um, in 2013, Eric Holder in the Obama administration said, they would not challenge uh, use according to state laws. In other words, if you uh, certified patients or patients were using, um, that was fine if the states permitted it. They wouldn't challenge that. There were some exceptions to that, having to do with kids' use on um, use by children, um, uh, use on public lands, and other other issues. The current administration. Uh, has been a little less clear about what their policies are. Initially, um, during a campaign, there was support for state determination. Then in 2018, in January, the um, Attorney General said, um, we're rescinding the no interference policy. We may go after people. Take your chances. And now there's we're reconsidering our position. Um, Because of the amount of money and industry that's invested in big cannabis now, it's really unlikely that uh, things will change significantly, that there'll be a real reversal of policy. But it's possible. So state therapeutic cannabis laws are very, very different from state to state. Some states you can grow it, some states you can't. Some states it's only through dispensaries. Some states do not allow edibles. Some states do not allow um, herbal, dried herbal. There are differences in the amounts of you can possess, the amounts that can be grown, whether uh, uh, you can certify um, um, someone else to manage cannabis for people who are very sick. Um, Certifying conditions um, are different from state to state. The symptoms that you have to have are different from state to state. Um, And whether you certify a patient or have to make a recommendation is different from state to state. And those are very different things. Um, In New Hampshire, um, many people felt that putting physicians in a position of recommending a trial of an unknown substance that has no regulatory oversight, was putting people in a different position. So in this state, um, physicians certify that a patient has a condition, and then they are um, eligible to decide to use on their own. Um, There is no prescribing. It's not an FDA-approved herb uh, substance, and so no states uh, require prescriptions. Um, Unfortunately, no states are collecting individual uh, patient-level data, to my knowledge, on the impact of cannabis. It's been recommended in the state templates have been provided to the legislature, but they felt that it was interfering with uh, patients' rights to require that they fill out a form when they pick up their uh, medications, uh, their their cannabis. So um, Canada is doing some studies of the impact of therapeutic cannabis on the individual patient level, so we can rely on them for some information. Um, So policy, how did we get here? Um, The advocates for recreational uh, marijuana uh, developed a really very effective strategy um, to with the end game of legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Marijuana Policy Project says, and it's one of the leading organizations that has shaped uh, changing policies in America, it envisions a nation where marijuana is legally regulated similar to alcohol. And many people here may share that vision, some may not. Um, but their strategy was first get the states to get medical marijuana legalized, then once that's in place and there's an investment in growing in dispensaries of industry money and support, the infrastructure is developed, decriminalize it um, so that um, uh, justice issues are addressed and then um, move to legalization. And they have done that in state after state after state, um, which is what has happened in New Hampshire. Um, uh, Medical marijuana law was passed about three to four years ago. Then two years later, decriminalization came, and now we have a big push for um, legalization. As you can see, um, that's a 2017 strategic plan targeting specific states at different stages of change. So a lot of this is being driven by industry. Um, it is uh, I, uh, last year, of 19, 2017, eight and a half billion dollars of revenues um, for legal marijuana. About 50 to 60 billion in illicit. If that got changed to legalization of marijuana, that would be revenue to industry and to um, states instead of to. Uh, the black market, though black markets have persisted in all states that have legalized. Um, Wall Street Journal makes the comment, it's like the Internet in 1997. You may be aware that in December, um, Altria, uh, which is R.J. Reynolds, uh, announced that it was investing in Canadian marijuana, and Anheuser-Busch is teaming up to make um, uh, 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 cannabinoid-infused beverages as beer Um, sales are falling off. So there's a lot of money invested in this um, by individuals and by industry, and states are looking um, to balance their budgets with taxation of cannabis. So another um, uh, barrier to uh, our having cannabinoid medications is uh, the many, many steps that are required to research controlled, schedule one controlled substances. I won't go through this um, whole list, but it involves... um, uh, uh not only the usual apply for the grant and um, uh, um, um, get your local permissions um, and, and organizational but you need to get a, um, a schedule and research license there need to be re- there used to need to be reviews by the public health service and DhHs DEA is involved in addition to getting an uh, investigational new drug number from the FDA, and lots of states had additional prescriptions uh, uh, restrictions. So there are many, many steps that aren't there when um, investigating non-controlled substances. Uh, in 2015, their requirements for uh, multiple reviews were removed, trying to make it easier, But um, and there have been efforts to overturn the status as a Schedule I drug to um, promote research and That may happen in the next year. Um, Another limitation is that there's historically been only a single source of cannabis uh, for research, and that was grown at the University of Mississippi. Because they were focusing on um, uh, use of cannabis, misuse of cannabis, addiction, and abuse, um, they grew it only for THC, not to explore all the other cannabinoids. Um, that are in cannabis, and they grew it in relatively low percentages, one, four, and seven. Now, typically on the street, it's between 15 and 30%. So um, that's been another thing. NIDA is expanding um, availability. They're looking at other cannabinoids and trying to grow different species now. Uh, as of 2016. The DEA is looking for other applicants to grow. The latest I've seen is that they've had 20 applicants but haven't approved any. I couldn't find information that there are more growers, but they have targeted um, increasing by five times the growth for research purposes. So um, NIH funding has mostly been uh, targeting Uh, misuse, they're now beginning to look at therapeutic use uh, more robustly. So as a result, most of the good research on cannabis for therapeutic use has been in other countries. Um, And um, when we look um, at the number of medications we have for opioids, we have over a dozen molecules, different molecules that are opioid molecules, some of them synthetic, some of them semi-synthetic. But we only have three medications available Um, uh, in the U.S. for uh, treatment. Um, Two of them, dronabinol and nabalone, are for um, treatment of HIV-related cachexia or chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and cannabidiol Epidiolex is available for um, childhood seizure uh, disorders. Uh, There are a 50-50 ratio of THC and cannabidiol is in phase three clinical trials. It's legal in Canada. It's legal in Europe. But it actually has gotten bogged down because um, some of the early studies have not found it to have um, um, efficacy um, for pain in um, oncologic settings. So um, herbal cannabis um, has over 70 cannabinoids in it, many of which are likely active and interactive with one another. Over 450 um, chemical constituents of different types, including um, uh, some biologically active ones, terpenes, flavonoids, and others. Um, so it's a very complex and potentially great source of medications uh, and pharmaceuticals, um, but we've been behind in studying it. Um, THC and CBD <coughs> cannabidiol are the most um, studied of these. Um, THC has euphoria. It's anti-emetic. Um, it's an appetite stimulant. It may have analgesic effects. It's uh, and CBD um, has some evidence of anxiolytic effects, it may have anti-inflammatory effects, and importantly, it has no euphoria. It seems to be available in New Hampshire over-the-counter, though I'm not aware of empowering legislation to do that, but many people are using it, and, and um, it, to date, there are not reports of harm. Um, so there are many others that are less studied, but it's known that there are many complex interactions among them. Um, for example, the 50 uh, uh <coughs> Uh, S- Sativex, um, nabiximols, I think is the generic name of it, um, is 50-50 ratio of THC and cannabidiol, and it's felt that the cannabidiol may to some degree um, attenuate the euphorogenic effects so people can be more functional at the same time having um, uh, possibly analgesic effects. But again, that's little, evidence is um, bidirectional. Um, So there are diverse strains of cannabis, and when we recommend it, um, we really rely on the dispensaries and the growers to let us know what that particular cannabis contains, what the ratio of cannabinoids is. Um, They're often um, counseling on indications as well. There's a small snippet there from one of the websites of a New Hampshire um, uh, dispensary that uh, shows six different cannabinoids and talks about the the effects of those cannabinoids, but when I search some of them online to try and find the scientific literature informing the indications, there may be one animal study that suggested that it might have effects, but they're not good clinical trials. So there's no consistent regulatory oversight either for product development or for um, quality um, of products. Um, Each state Tries to oversee, but, you know, state budgets are really strained, and and we don't have the capacity um, to do the type of oversight that we'd like to see for pharmaceuticals. Um, Cannabis can be used um, by many different routes. Um, Smoked is the traditional, but most dispensaries and or clinicians would not recommend that at this time because of the products of combustion. It does have a rapid onset, but in its place, vaporization has become uh, more the norm. Uh, Extracts, oils... Um, ore drive herb can be um, vaporized. That's heating until the active ingredient comes out into vapor is inhaled without combusting it. Um, There are metered doses that are devices that are in evolution or possibly available now. Um, Oral products are much slower in onset um, and uh, variable dosing because of first uh, pass effects that can be somewhat unpredictable. And there's a real concern about them being misused by children and, in fact, poisonings in Um, Colorado, and by um, children under nine have been um, going up significantly since legalization (laughs) and medical use. But medical uh, cannabis is available in these candy and um, oral forms, um, as well as in tinctures, which are also used orally. Transdermal, it's highly lipid-soluble. Cannabinoids are highly lipid-soluble, so they can be used um, transdermally. And you can see there a uh, THC one-to-one uh, transdermal formulation. Um, why do they work? Well, like opiates, we have an endogenous opioid system, we also have an endogenous. Cannabinoid system. There are so many active cannabinoids within our system. The first identified was anandamide, which is Sanskrit for bliss, um, nodding to the uh, in, uh, euphorogenic effects of it, um, and arachidonal dopamine, nada. I love that for cannabis, nada. Um, so, and many, many others. Um, we have CB1 receptors, we have CB2 receptors. CB1 are um, uh, rich in the CNS. Um, uh, CB2 receptors are in more in peripheral tissues, so there are some in the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, but particularly in the immune system. Um, and um, cannabinoids seem to act on other receptors as well. There's recent um, studies looking at uh, cannabidiol and its action on NMDA receptors, and there's an NMDA receptor antagonist, possibly. Um, and, but there are many natural roles, so antinociception, mood modulation, their are roles in cognition and memory, hence some of the side effects of, of, of cannabinoids, um, and in appetite. Um, so there's so much literature now, there, it's in, almost impossible to keep up with it unless it's just a full-time thing, which it's not mine. But so I wanted to present just one um, Important um, review, which was by the National Academy of Science, came out in 2007. They found substantial for clinical effects, substantial or conclusive evidence for chronic pain in adults, particularly neuropathic pain. That's been questioned since then. Um, Chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, uh, subjective spasticity in MS, moderate moderate evidence that there is a good effect on short-term sleep. Um, particularly CBD, and many people will use it for that. Um, limited, interestingly, for appetite and weight loss. Um, though we do have medications for to stimulate um, appetite, um, spasticity, Tourette's, anxiety, PTSD. Very limited that they may be useful for that. I just since we're talking about pain today. Neuropathic pain, there was a recent Cochrane review that looked at 16 studies, um, almost 2,000 subjects, and found only low to moderate quality studies and relatively short term, up to 26 weeks. Um, And they looked at all cannabinoid medications and diverse herbs, and their conclusions were that if you pulled all these studies together and all the different forms of of cannabis and cannabinoid medications. They seem to be better than placebo for pain, but not for quality of life overall due to side effects, and many people um, dropped out. So, And they, they found that herbal cannabis alone was not better based on the studies that they looked at than placebo. So essentially what they said is if you're going to use it because relatively few people may respond to it, you need to monitor people very well and not continue it if... It's not effective, Um, similar as the recommendations for opioids. Um, Start with an exit plan (laughs) if it's not working. Um, Side effects, we know um, most of the studies are from recreational use. They could be higher or lower in the therapeutic context. Um, Cognitive and perceptual distortions, sedation reward, that leads to risk of motor vehicle accidents, um, falls in the elderly. Um, and other kinds of trauma. Impairment in work and social performance for regular users, low birth weight, pregnancy complications, neurodevelopmental changes, mild, uncertain, but um, uh, contraindicated in pregnancy. Um, Developmental changes are clear in adolescents who use regularly um, in terms of both social, intellectual, motivational changes. Risk of psychotic disorders, um, there's been a lot of research at this institution um, uh, documenting that. Um, earlier onset of schizophrenia, perhaps a higher prevalence, and anxiety disorders in at-risk patients, increased suicide in patients with depression, um, uh, BPD, um, bipolar disorder, and episodes of mania, uh, hypomania, so real concerns about worsening of mental illnesses or precipitation of them. Physiologic dependence and withdrawal has been well documented. Alan Budney, who's a researcher here, was one, one of the first people to describe that. And cannabis use disorder, and the literature suggests between somewhere between 10 and 30%. With the newer, more high-potency strains, 30% looks like for, for people who use more than rarely um, is a challenge. I want to point out that for adults in green, if you look at the green, uh, cannabis has historically um, been um, less of a problem than alcohol and opioids in the blue and red there, but for adolescents, demand for addiction treatment has been highest for cannabis. Um, historically and currently, and it is rising across the country. Um, Those are the neurobehavioral effects. We all knew that they had them, but there's some concern now about um, particularly cardiac effects of cannabis. We know that using cannabis increases um, heart rate and blood pressure. Um, That's been known for many, many years, but there have been many case reports and case series of triggering myocardial infarction within the first hour of use, and there are rising Uh, CV uh, strokes among young people and some indication that cannabis may be associated with those. Enough that the American Stroke Association has um, uh, said that it needs to be a subject of more research. Um, And then there are a number of other uh, associations. And these, again, are um, from the National Academy of Science and uh, National Institutes on Drug Abuse. Um, Many public health um, considerations, um, I think I've mentioned most of these, so I want to get to Kathleen, <laughs> so I'm going to hurry through this. Interactions between opioids and cannabinoids. Um, we have good evidence that there are rich interconnections between the opioid system and the cannabinoid system. Neuroanatomically, there are co locations periactal peri-ductal-dray and other centers that are very involved in pain um, and within the ventral-tegmental area, Um, the nucleus accumbens, which are involved in reward and mood, Um, a lot of uh, co-location of cannabinoid receptors and opioid receptors. And then we know that there's crosstalk between them because if you give naloxone or selective opioid antagonists to animals that have cannabis-induced analgesia and experimental models of pain or who are self-administering for a reward, it blocks the behavior. So you can reverse cannabinoid effects by giving opioid antagonists in some settings. And the reverse is true. Cannabinoid antagonists can block (laughs) opioid effects. Um, We know that mice who have are knockout mice; they have no CB1 receptors, will not do conditioned place preference or self-administration of opioids. So we knock out the cannabinoid receptors, and they don't get reward from opioids. And reverse mice without mu receptors, um, mu uh, opioid receptors, um, don't uh, self-administer cannabis. So. The complexity of these interactions, given the number of cannabinoids in cannabis and the number of opioids we have, the number of receptors for opioids and cannabinoids, we need to do a lot of research to really better understand the interactions. Now, everybody's interested in opioid sparing effects. I'm just going to give you the bottom line here. There is a lot of evidence that suggests that in animals, Cannabinoids can, will, animals will reduce their use of opioids for pain or in terms of, of self administration. Um, there are clinical studies that do suggest improved pain control by combining c- cannabinoid and opioids. They also have combined um, side effects, but they don't provide compelling evidence in total of less opioid use. Um, so there's mixed evidence. I'm not going to go through all these studies. But again, the first two um, suggest that there are no opioid sparing effects in in um, co-use of cannabis. The other, for smaller studies, suggest that there are. So the literature is really po- uh, uh, pointing in a couple of directions. Um, there was a. a a uh, report that got a lot of attention in 2010 showing that states that had available medical cannabis had less opioid overdose deaths, but I draw your attention to study out of a study out of Colorado that showed that as cannabis availability increased in Colorado, there was a simultaneous increase in opioid overdose deaths. Neither of these show causation. They cause show association. It's a long discussion, the variables that might inform that. Um, But major concerns, there are no reported single overdose deaths due to cannabis. One exception is a a baby in Colorado that was thought to be primarily due to that. Um, Addiction, about 25 to 40 percent of um, opioid users, 9 to 30 percent of cannabis users. Um, in therapeutic use, we know the studies say between 3 and 25 percent of long term users of opioids. Data is not available for cannabis. Withdrawal is very dramatic in um, opioids. It's well described, but much more subtle in cannabis. So, what do we do? Um, the American Pain Society um, had a clinical consensus on managing patients. Um, be aware of the federal and state laws, um, work within the state laws. Be guided by evidence, not by commercial messaging. There's a lot out there by growers and dispensaries about the benefits of different formulations for different things. As close as we can stay to the science, I think our patients are better off. We need to advise our patients on routes of administration as much as we can and on um, uh, choices of cannabinoids. Then, essentially, what the other recommendations were is to manage people who are using cannabis similarly with the same universal precautions that we use for opioids. Because while the overdose risk is not, does not appear to be present, the risks of addiction, misuse, harm, trauma, and others are. And we want to make sure our patients are benefiting. So I'm going to end there and um, give Kathleen time to do her. Um, let us know what happened with her patients. Okay.
2: Yeah, and I'm going to try to, some to, clinical pearls. I'm going to try to do this really quickly to just open it up for questions. But so in case one, we got the she got the card and she started with edibles at night. Uh, she preferred the edibles because she really didn't like to smoke. Over an eight month period, she reduced her opioids and she completely weaned off at within a year. So I'm still seeing her. She was able to, to decrease her dose of pregabalin for the neuropathic pain. And she currently vapes at night and uses edibles, and it costs about $5 a day for her to do this. In my second case of the post-thoracotomy, he attained the Vermont Cannabis Card. He vaped daily when he could afford it. He tried multiple formulations. He would bring them in and show them to me, and I would say, well, please don't bring them here. You're not supposed to. And he says, look, you can't smell the vape, and he would pull it out. And I'm like, no, please don't do that. The vape cost $50. You learn a lot because they, the vape cost him $50 and it only lasted a few days. It helped him relax. It didn't make any significant difference in his pain, and he eventually returned to his PCP from U agonist opioids because he didn't want to be on Suboxone. So the bottom line is that, you know, is to try to figure out if you're not doing it in your clinic and yet patients are coming. We just did, Matt Wilson and I just did a retrospective review of how many patients in our palliative care clinic actually are on cannabis. And we really mostly only ask those on opioids because it's part of our opioid prescribing guideline. And so 27% report use of cannabis. And that's not even asking all of our patients. So that's a larger amount than we realize and many of those do not necessarily have a therapeutic cannabis card, but they are using it for supposedly medical purposes. You know, the, the, some of the, sh- and I feel that that pretty much reflects what's probably happening because people aren't coming to us and saying, I need a cannabis card like in some other states because you have to have a three-month relationship with the patient or it's got to be a new diagnosis. You know, it's also not cheap. I think that there was an editorial that came out last year about, like, I now prescribe cannabis because I don't want my patients to be on opioids. And I think we have to recognize that, number one, it's not covered by insurance. And when I've talked to my patients, some of my patients are paying up to four and $500 a month for their cannabis, which a lot of my patients can't even put food on the table, never mind cannabis. So the cost is not feasible. And I think that when we when patients ask me to do it, one of the first things I do is ask them, can you afford it? Because I don't want them to think, hey, this is a great alternative, and then find out not only the $50 application, then there's the application for the caregiver, and then there's also the cost monthly. you know. And then really wanting to provide guidance to the patients, because even if you're not going to be the expert, I mean, I've had to learn more about it, but you want to make sure that when that patient goes to the dispensary that they talk about what they want it for, because... In our clinic, over 50% have used it for pain, and not everyone, we we haven't looked at the opioid sparing effects at all, but many of our patients are using it for multiple symptoms. They're using it for nausea, they're using it for sleep, they're using it for anxiety. And so you want to make sure if they're going to go to the dispensary and they want it, that they're very specific when they talk to the person at the dispensary as to why they want this medication. You know, what's the preferable method? I mean, I pretty much recommend for my patients if there's no contraindication that they should vape just because the edibles have a lower bioavailability. You don't know when it's going to, one of my patients basically got a package from her son in California and she thought, oh, this is great chocolate, this is the worst tasting chocolate I've ever had. 12 hours later when she was stoned out of her mind because she didn't know, she didn't see the little cannabis plant on the front that he had sent her cannabis to try because she has cancer. You know, so you want to make sure that, you know, patients know what they're using. Um, And then you really what we want to do is document like what is the reason that we did this therapeutic cannabis you know are they getting? you know and making sure that we tell our patients about the potential side effects and the response to therapy. So even though I'm filling this out and even though I'm not writing a prescription, you know what we've done is like I pulled some informed consent that I kind of looked from the pain clinic and primary care made my own and put like that I'm certifying I'm not prescribing. It's a small I created a smart phrase based on uh, those that are used in pa- primary and and pain and basically with the patient counseling talking to them about like because Like said and says, like, if they said, oh, yeah, I used to smoke pot 40 years ago. Okay, well, that pot 40 years ago, maybe it had 5% THC. In our dispensary here in Lebanon, when I went on the website, there are some extracts that have 70% THC. So that one toke that they take from their vape is, like, way (laughs) different than when they were able to smoke a joint, you know, 30 years ago when they were in college. So really making sure that they understand that in in terms of not driving about storing it, especially if they have children, and then also about, you know, not sharing it. I mean, because people do share, just like their opioids. People come in and say, hey, I got this from my neighbor. It's really great, you know. I mean, it's like share and share alike, you know. They don't share blood pressure medicines. They don't share insulin, but they definitely share opioids and cannabis, you know. And this is my patient education sample, which you cannot read. I'm happy to share with the smart phrase that I put, but also primary care has it, pain medicine has it. You know, and so really the clinical pearls are is like really finding out what they're also using. I'm finding that many of my patients that report efficacy say that for sleep and anxiety that CBD works and they don't have the psychomimetic effects. Some that are using it for pain, I don't know why, but they really find the CBD creams. I have people, you know, writing me from um, Hawaii all the time. We really want that CBD cream that, you know, you can get. It's $90 a jar and really has 10% camphor and 16% menthol. Probably doesn't have much CBD at all, but they find it effective. you know. And really how often they're using and what are the side effects. And thinking about, for those that work inpatient, if someone's using it daily and they're not smuggling in the hospital, what are we going to do if they start having the subtle you know, um, <coughs> cannabis use withdrawal symptoms? You know, Do we need to put some dronabinol? Do we need to put some lorazepam? Do we need to put some gabapentin? There's no evidence-based, you know, therapies for withdrawal, but we can potentially use that. And so, we wanted to leave. We've got, that clock is fast. We have seven minutes to address any questions. (laughs) Yeah, stay. Okay, Okay. stay. So, does anyone have any questions?
1: Oh, there must be some questions. We'll take a deep breath. Okay.
0: So, um, so I have... uh, Patients like your first patient who were on chronic opioids for a long, long time and started using therapeutic cannabis and are now off their chronic opioids, and that feels like a win. But I, but I also, so, I, so I, I recognize there's potential here. Can,
1: can I ask you something before you go on? Yeah. Why does that feel like a win? Were they doing well or they weren't doing well?
0: Uh, I think that's a great question. Why does that feel like? Because it's supposed to. Because we're supposed to have our patients right. on chronic. Because it feels a little safer, is really the answer. Okay, we're on pretty high doses of opioid, yep. opioids, and um, right or wrong, it feels safer. And maybe good. that's around the rate of opioid-related deaths as opposed to cannabis-related deaths. Right. Um, functionally, they're probably about the same. There's probably not a lot of difference. Um, so, so, yeah.
1: And is that. it good function?
0: Uh, it's reasonable in both. Okay. Good. you know scenarios. Um, so anyway, I, that, that's by way of saying I think there's some potential here. I also have patients who ask all the time. You know, this is now something I hear from patients. Like I said every day, um, and they ask about which product to use. Which product should I use? And it feels very uncomfortable to that the experts, as you mentioned. Are at the dispensary, yep, and they have an invested interest. It feels a little bit like the pharmaceutical reps who were saying long acting opioids are so safe, and we know where that led us. so
1: without the F- without the FDA shaping the messages that they're giving you yeah. so
0: yeah, so where do they where how do we guide patients in getting unbiased information about the products that
1: that's the challenge.
0: Well, I, I don't know.
2: I, I mean, yeah, that's really questionable. Because what I really have to tell my patients is that you know when they go in, you know, that's why I ask them to say, tell them specifically what's most important to you, and what's you know, and and also like for patients that are really afraid of, like, the psychomimetic effects that, you know, do not let them try to give you the, you know, I mean, I try to provide some guidance to them in terms of, like, not getting a high THC product or something like that, but but I don't know where you can get unbiased information because you the, can't. Science, the science is still uh, so inconclusive.
1: It, it is, and I would say that the dispensaries, tr- I, I believe most of them, They there are some very respected physicians from our community who are on the board's, trying to use what sci- the scientific evidence that's available to inform decision-making. But without randomized controlled clinical trials and without phase one through three trials, we just don't know because we're all subject to bias.
0: So, is that
1: me? Whoever speaks. Uh,
0: in Connecticut, they, you have to be a pharmacist at of a mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's also this idea of like, how can we learn from other states? Yes. What are other states doing California is doing a lot of um, outcome studies. A lot of their dispensaries are doing some outcome studies, and it's great to have the randomized control trials. But we also just have to start with where we are. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if you guys would like would you ever partner with the dispensary in Lebanon and try to do some clinical trials, trials, and you know do an epidemiological study to figure out. What are patients getting and
1: what are they reporting? Yeah, some of the dispensaries are beginning to do those trials in the state. Um, uh, partnering with them, is if academics reached out to them to partner to do those trials I, and found funding to support them, I think that would be excellent. Um, and, yes, states are learning from one another, Um uh, there was a, a committee looking not at uh, therapeutic cannabis but recreational cannabis that the legislature created. They had people from every state that had legalized um, cannabis come in to talk about their experiences, um, and I think similarly for therapeutic cannabis, we need to be doing that. Having pharmacists at the dispensaries would be very helpful. I think they that that all later. I want to confess that I'm still struggling, even though I enjoyed your talk with the whole the fundamental question of sort of do no harm. Absolutely. I worry, even the signing off on the card, which I'm asked to do in my HIV clinic, um, again, if some of those data about high rates of development of psychosis and stuff like that are true, one worries that not only do we not know how to dose this stuff right and how to do the indication, maybe it's really
0: not the right thing to do. And again, I, I always tell people, I, I'm not judgmental about recreational right. use. Yeah. I'm like, whatever. But whether I should be
1: recommending it now feels to me still an unsettled issue. Am I wrong? No. Oh, well, me, I'll give you my yeah. Go ahead. Um, I, I, I hope that in my remarks I didn't. Um, convey that I would encourage everybody to go out and certify patients. I think these are complicated issues. I think we all need to uh, decide what um, uh, is best for the individual patient in front of us. And as I said, in New Hampshire, you don't need to recommend, if your patient wants to try it, you can, if you choose to, explain your concerns and say, I'll certify that you have this condition. I'm not going to recommend that you use it. Or you can decide that the risks are too great for that individual patient and say, I don't want to certify because, you know, you have a prior history of X, Y, or Z um, vasospastic um, coronary artery problems and or you've had falls and or you have a history of addiction and I'm really concerned I'm not comfortable. There's no obligation to certify, but you are not making a recommendation and i know that's kind of double talk i mean it's like if we certify are we recommending but that's why the law was constructed the way it was in the state
2: and i think that so just even though i said that like a almost a 25 27% use when patients come and ask me i mean it's not like a, it's I always say, why don't we, you know, try what we have pharmacologically first, you know? Right. And then if they say, but I'm already using it, you know, for my friend and my neighbor and I really would like. So it's not like that, <laughs> that I'm offering. It's usually what's happening is they said, I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried this. And especially like when I think about appetite stimulation or something like that, where we have absolutely nothing pharmacologically, especially in a palliative care setting other than Dronabinol, which really doesn't work, you know, for most people. So I think that for me, it's like I always do the like, you know, look at, you know, why don't we try what we have pharmacologically first, you know, so that's the way that I do. But, and most of the time, people are coming in asking for it and then we talk about what the potential risks are so it's not like i'm saying hey cannabis is here please come and we'll be glad to certify you and i also want my biggest concern is people in terms of is the cost you know for a lot of our patients
1: so just one more point. Um, I think you re- raise a really important issue because, um, w- the, the potency of current, um, cannabis products, um, as Kathleen mentioned, can be up to 75%. We have no evidence about the potential harm and long-term effects of those, particularly when used on a regular basis. None. And because there just hasn't been experience with that that's been studied. And I see it as somewhat analogous to the, You know, at the 90s when sustained-release opioids came out, and we we all thought, well, a couple of Percocet or it's okay. And then these potent um, opioids came out that people began using on a regular basis, and then um, uh, would alter the way it was used. And we saw what happened with. with that, rising um, harm associated with opioids. So yes, will there be episodes increasing rising psychosis? Will there be rising, there are rising motor vehicle accidents associated with cannabis. Now, um, whether people are substituting cannabis for alcohol and there are less MVAs associated with alcohol, we don't know, nobody is looking at it that way. So. I, I respect that entirely. Above all else, do no harm. We don't have the information right now, but you do need to approach each patient, guided by the science that we have, with compassion for what they need. If we don't have other tools, so. So
0: there's clearly a lot more we want and need to know. Yes, and if you're I'm able to, to stay down here, maybe folks I, who, who have questions
1: can come down. I can't. I actually have to go to the governor's commission. So taking thank a vote you. <laughs>